This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station, Joy 94.9. Joy 94.9. Welcome to the Rainbow Report. News, opinion, current affairs for the Rainbow community from Joy 94.9. Australia's only full-time gay and lesbian radio station. Gay and lesbian radio station. And now your host, Doug Pollard. Doug Pollard. News and interviews. Joy 94.9. Well, thanks, Chris and Cam, for your drive factory. Good evening. Welcome to the Rainbow Report. We're talking about how far we've come and where we've still to get to. In the past, we were often airbrushed out of history, but now we're doing our best to make sure we are recorded on history's page at every stage, as the National Anthem says. This week saw the launch of a new Facebook page chronicling the genesis of England's first national gay newspaper, Gay News. Now, those of you who know me little will know I find this exciting because I was one of the founders of that paper back in 1970. A um, bunch of the guys, um, some who have been involved in it in, over its long history, have uh, started a Facebook page and a YouTube channel chronicling the story of the paper. Tonight we'll talk to uh, one of them, former assistant editor of the paper, Keith Howes. Now, we talked a lot about reparative therapy last week, and Labour candidate for the seat of Melbourne, Kath Botel, had some ideas on how we might follow California's lead and shut this dangerous practice down. Tonight, we'll be joined in the studio by the man she hopes to put out of a job, the sitting Greens MP and deputy leader of his party, Adam Bant. We'll talk to him about this, the idea of a referendum on marriage equality, and whatever else you want to ask him. The uh, other piece of history was made when the US wing of the Anglican Church, the Episcopalians, appointed the first openly gay bishop. Not only that, but a bishop living in a relationship with another man. Gene Robinson will be visiting Melbourne soon, but he recently went back to his old diocese of New Hampshire where he spoke on local radio about his experience of reparative therapy and his subsequent heterosexual marriage. Lending a hand tonight is Rod Swift. Good evening, Doug. Good evening, Rod. Mm. Um, Well, as I said, uh, we're going to have a little wait for Adam. So in the meantime, we're going to talk to Gene Robertson. But before you do that, let's give you some information about how to contact us. This is the Rainbow Report. What do you think? Email us right now on air at joy.org.au. Now, the former head of the Diocese of New Hampshire, Episcopalian Bishop Jean Robinson, was the first out gay bishop in the Anglican Church. Nominally retired, he's now written a book, made a documentary, and he'll be here in Melbourne shortly. Recently, he went back to his old stamping ground of Concord, New Hampshire, where he spoke with WNHN radio reporter Arnie Arneson. What everyone knows about you is that you are a gay man. When did you know that? You know, it's when did you know and when did you know? Gay wasn't a word. Well, it was a word, but it meant like a fun party, right? Right, exactly. Uh, So there were no labels. So it was hard to put a label on something that really wasn't talked about. If it was talked about, it was always in a whisper and always with a kind of condemning tone. Mm -hmm. But I can remember when I was about 12, some friends of mine got hold of a Playboy magazine, which was less risque, by the way, than what you can see on TV (laughs) any day uh, today. Yeah, back then, exactly, exactly. But I had this sense 
that these pictures were doing more for them than they were doing for me. And almost at the same instant, I realized I'd better not say that, that not only would it endanger our friendship, but that I might physically be in danger as well. And that began the kind of bifurcated life that most gay and lesbian people, certainly the ones who grew up when I did, started to lead. So you had this this self that you put out to the world, yeah. and then there was the real self that you told no one about. Now, and, you uh, you knew that you couldn't share this, and you knew that you needed to some extent be afraid did you also know that you needed to not share it and be afraid of your parents? Would your parents have been accepting? So it's, that would be the last place you would share it. Yeah. This is how discrimination and the experience of being a minority is different from an ethnic minority. Because, you know, if you're black and, so you, your and you get called the N-word, your parents have probably lived through that. And they've got resources to comfort you and, and, and make you strong. But if you suspect that you're homosexual then it's the last place you would go because you might lose that thing known as home. And even today, 40% of all the kids living homeless on the streets of our cities are gay and lesbian kids who have been thrown out when they came out. Oh, my God. So we have made huge progress. And there is still so far to go. We've got gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender kids living on our streets because they have been thrown out of their homes when they came out. So, gosh. So as you're describing it, you you knew you were different. You go to New York. Um, do you go to New York because you think New York is the place where you get to find yourself? Where you get to I celebrate got, who you no, are? So I or is to, New York part of the cloister where you still have to live this bifurcated <laughs> life and there's yeah. this gene and then there's that gene? Well, not only was I trying to live this bifurcated life, but I was trying to tame that life that horrified me because I had been told day in and day out that to be attracted to someone of the same gender was an abomination to God. And so I got into therapy twice a week. Gosh, I'd love to have all that money back. You know? <laughs> I got in therapy twice a week to to become straight. In those days, we thought that was possible. Right. No one could have been more motivated than I was. I wanted a family. Uh, you know, I had great relationships with women, and I wanted to be married. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at the end of uh, two years, I felt I was ready for a relationship with a woman and met a wonderful woman from southern New Hampshire. And I told her within two weeks of meeting her, that, you know, what relationships I'd had had been with men, been in therapy, I thought I was ready for this, and we fell in love. And about a month before the wedding, I broke down in tears and said to her, you know, I'm just so fearful that this is going to raise its ugly head again. And she said, if that should happen, we love each other enough, we'll deal with it. And 13 years later, we did. And we decided really quite amazingly that we were both paying too high a price for this and that the only way we could live up to our wedding vow to honor one another in the name of God was to let each other go. And in fact, we went back to church to end our marriage. Uh, we took a priest with us to the judge's chambers for our divorce decree. And then we went back to his church. And in the context of a communion service, we asked each other's forgiveness in any ways that we had hurt one another. We pledged ourselves to the joint raising of our two children. And we gave our wedding rings back to each other as the symbol of the vows that we no longer held each other to. And uh, And we cried a lot. 
and oh. had communion. It was just one of the most healing moments of my whole life. Talk to me about this book. What is the motive for God Believes in Love? We're at this astounding moment in American history. As of the election, we have now nine states where marriage equality is the law, plus the District of Columbia. But that's the low-hanging fruit, right? There are many, many, many places in America where that's not true. And we even have quite a lot of people who are feeling more tolerant, certainly, of gay and lesbian people. I think the reason is that now pretty much everyone in America knows they know someone gay. But they're not ready to go all the way to advocating for marriage. And the questions that I ask in this book, I, I basically imagined a conversation between me and one of these people who are reasonably tolerant, but they really can't find their way all the way to marriage. And I so guess. each one of those questions mm-hmm. forms a chapter in the book, and I try to answer those. It looks at legal stuff and constitutional stuff and religious stuff. It's a general book that sort of looks at the whole issue of marriage for same-gender couples. And rather than having to read a whole book on the legal stuff or a whole book on the religious, biblical stuff, it answers those questions in a form that I think will not only make sense to people who actually have those questions, but also it provides a script for those of us who are advocates but don't know what we'll say to a next-door neighbor or a co-worker yeah, when I, they ask us those questions. Well, I was going to ask a question. When you have this discussion with other clergy in faiths that tend to be very antagonistic to the idea of gay marriage and homosexuality, how do you challenge them? I never tell them what they should think or believe. I only tell them what I believe All right. and how I came to believe it. And then I let that witness do its work. I would even say, then I let the Holy Spirit take over and do the Holy Spirit's work in that person. When we shake our finger and tell someone else what they should think and believe, we get nowhere. Well, well, you know who I'm thinking of? I'm thinking about the fact that they could not get their way in the United States, and so a lot of Episcopalians went to Asia, went to Mm -hmm. Africa. How did you deal with those men, in particular, I suppose there were no women, when they were so intolerant? Of you, how did you converse? Well, yeah, I mean, you kill them with kindness, right? You That's charm the th- pants off of them, Gene. Absolutely, I know it. <laughs> you know, because that is the first moment when they become confused. And confusion is a real step forward right. above certainty, yeah. right? right? And, and so right. it gives me an opportunity to be in their midst and just to challenge some of those things. So, for instance, I love when I'm debating someone who is divorced and remarried. Because, So I say to them, I'll tell you what I think about homosexuality in the Bible. If you'll tell me how you can be remarried, uh, when Jesus says remarriage after divorce is adultery. Right. You tell me how you deal with that. Or I will say you consider yourself a biblical literalist and you you believe it's just straight and true. Just read it. So what about Jesus saying in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to be a follower of mine, you must give up all your possessions. You tell me how you deal with that. And then I'll tell you how I deal with Leviticus. 
Well, that was uh, Bishop Jean Robinson there, the uh, first out gay bishop in the Episcopalian Church. He'll be over here in Melbourne at the end of the month. Now, we have had um, a good deal of news about marriage of late. Um, It's happened in New Zealand very happily. It's happened in France not so happily. And of late, we've started talking about having a referendum on it here. Um, Who better, therefore, to uh, talk about the issue of marriage and where we do go with it from here than the uh, Greens MP for Melbourne, Adam Bant, who joins us in the studio now. Good evening, Adam. Hi, Doug. And welcome back to the programme. It's been a while. Um, First of all, um, what was your sort of take on the the way things uh, went in France? That was very kind of divisive and violent and unpleasant, wasn't it? Do you, do you see any danger of that sort of thing happening here? It, it was, but it's, I think it's notable that it's the exception rather than the rule. If you look at the number of countries that um, had now have legislated to remove discrimination from their Marriage Act and you look at, as we just heard, what happened over in New Zealand and the fact that the Parliament sung at yes, the end of it. Yes, that was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, I, the, I think that what's happening in, in, in France is notable as an exception and I really cannot see anything like that happening here. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of people who will celebrate, a lot of people who will be um, relieved and probably think it's a good thing and then move on and get on with their lives and I think it'll be a very small number of people here in Australia who would feel as passionate about it as, the, as some have in France. Yeah, but there is a danger, is there not, in this new idea that seems to have uh, come up now, Tony Windsor's idea that we ought to have a referendum on the issue. Now, first off, is a referendum appropriate for this sort of thing? I don't think it is. I think that, you know, we've got the legal power to do it. There's no question that the Constitution needs to be changed. And uh, in order to give Parliament the legal power to do it, we've got the legal power to do it. Uh, I think we should do what the other countries have done, in that, and that is legislate. And I'd be concerned that a referendum would really um, would would be a distraction, I guess, from legislation that we've got, and that I, I mean, I've got in the Parliament at the mm-hmm. moment that I hope we get a vote on before the election. Yeah, because it would incredibly prolong the whole process, wouldn't it, if we had to go through a plebiscite or a referendum of something of the kind, and it would um, give an opportunity for for a much more divisive campaign to be waged. Uh, than well, it would, and date. especially when you look at the history. I mean, to get a referendum passed in Australia, you need a majority of people in a majority of states. Mm, and it's just been almost never. <laughs> eight, eight out of 44 and yeah. proposals have got up. And even proposals to do things like put in the Constitution to enshrine the right to property, for example, which mm. you would have thought would be in a capitalist yeah, society would be a fairly no fundamental yeah. thing, um, went down because they, you know, people said that there's sinister things behind it and so on. Mm. And so mm. you really... Uh, you open yourself up to scare campaigns and stuff. You absolutely do. And I think mm. that there's there's no it, it's completely unnecessary. And I mean, interestingly, I think Tony was was also um, moving away from it at a rate of knots as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very great. It's very gratifying to see that nobody really likes the idea very much, except the extreme left. Uh, I noticed that the Equal Love campaign, the National Union of Students, and the various flavours of socialist whatevers, um, socialist alternative, have all come out in favour 
of a referendum, and I can't quite for the life of me understand why. Well, I imagine that the that their thinking would be that um, you you have such strong public support for it that it would put the issue to bed once and for all. But we had strong public support for a, for a republic, didn't we? That's exactly right. Mm. There's ways that's, and I think the republic referendum is instructive. Even though the public can be in support of something in particular, people who are against it can find ways of of blocking it and of course with a referendum um, as long as you can block in certain places then you can make the whole thing fall over. Mm, and it also depends of course of how you word the question. There's That's a exactly lot of, right. lot of devil in that particular detail. Right. Yes, yeah, lots of devil in the detail and one of the other things about the eight referendums that have got up, and that's if we're talking about constitutional change of course, is that all of them have been supported predominantly by both major parties saying vote yes. For example the referendum for Aboriginal people to be included in the constitution, both parties voted yes. You could never see both parties endorsing a yes vote on this, could you? Well, that's right, and that's the... Um, uh, I, I, I think that's probably unlikely, and um, the rule of thumb is that unless you have both of the old parties supporting it, then if one of them says we're going to campaign against it, then because of the very high bar that's required under the Constitution to amend it, um, you, you, you're very unlikely to succeed. Mm. Can, right. I, can I come back to what you mentioned before, which is your bill, uh, the Greens bill, um, whichever one, I think you've got more than one, haven't you, uh, that's sitting in Parliament to uh, provide marriage equality. What's the situation there? I mean, we've all been told that um, it would have a good chance of passing if Tony Abbott would give it a conscience vote. But um, what would be the chances if he didn't? Because you talked about trying very to get it through. Very difficult. Very difficult. Trying to get doesn't. it through before the election. Look, if he, uh, I'm hopeful that before the election that the coalition can be shifted and that their members will be granted a conscience vote. Um, I think the campaign do, is... Do you have evidence for the shift? Well, happening? the campaign is growing day by day, and uh, when I last brought my bill on for debate in the House of Representatives, um, a Liberal MP for, from Higgins, Kelly O'Dwyer, got up and said that, look, she's actually personally comfortable. She could understand that there's a case for a conscience vote. A number of Liberal candidates have come out and said that they should have a conscience vote. And at the end of the day, the Liberal position is untenable. This is the party that says they mm. believe in freedom of choice. Um, not only for individuals, uh, but also for their members of parliament, and that continually trumpets that the thing that separates them from the other parties is that their their members of parliament can cross the floor without fear of expulsion. And I know some of them have done that on issues surrounding refugees, for example, around single parents. Some Liberal MPs came and voted with us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that for many Liberal MPs, it grates them that Tony Abbott is it really great that Tony Abbott is not allowing a conscience vote on what for them is a matter of conscience. And so I think fundamentally that the coalition's position is untenable and I think we've got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until there's a conscience vote. Do you think there's any chance of the, of the party room actually rolling Tony Abbott on this one? I mean, are they going to get angry enough to, to override him? Well, I think if, if it got to that point, I imagine that he would take the lead and, and be seen to be granting it himself. There was a significant amount of dissent when, uh, after Parliament rose last year, he more or less unilaterally decided that there wasn't going to be a conscience vote. And I know a large number of Liberal MPs are very, very unhappy with that. Because mm. he does seem to have... Um, something similar seems to have happened with the disability insurance scheme. My, my reading of it is that, you know, 
know, he, he was quite keen to say no. And then all of a sudden he's saying yes. And Julie Gillard saying, bring it on and we'll have the vote. I, I get a strong sense there that perhaps there were people in the party room saying, come on, Tony. Probably. And look, of course, as we get closer to the election, everything... Um, from their perspective, gets viewed very much for, through the prism of what will or won't gain votes. And I actually think that marriage equality is now such a popular issue that um, they uh, and a large number of Liberal MPs and aspiring Liberal candidates know that it's holding them back, not being able to vote according to their conscience. And, mm. and so I think there's every chance that even for the most basis of cynical uh, electoral <laughs> motives that, that, that Tony Abbott will change and allow them a conscience vote. And if he does, you think there would be enough Liberal MPs to give you a majority? I think there's every chance. I think one of the problems that we've had is that up till now, because they haven't been, because they've been kept under that lid, mm. um, few of them have been prepared to speak up and actually say where they stand. And a few brave ones have started to stick their heads up above the parapet. Yeah, Once you, it's you, known that yeah, there's you a must have, vote... You, you must have sort of private discussions with people I think and there's a certain, kind of get a feeling. I think for, there's every chance that it could, but I think we would need a period of openness, I guess, to allow the lobbying and a few who haven't yet stated their position to, to come out of the woodwork. Okay. But I think there's every chance it could. And certainly, uh, if not that, certainly the legislation to recognise overseas marriages could certainly get passed through this parliament as well. Have we got enough time left in this parliament? Yes, we have. We've got five uh, five weeks left. The Senate sits for three weeks. The House sits for five weeks. Um, there's a lot of things that people want to get through, but these are bills that have been canvassed, debated to inquiries and back, and uh, everyone knows the issues. We've, if we've got time to get the disability insurance levy through, then I see no reason why, given that there's no legislation in Parliament for that yet, I see mm. no reason why we couldn't get this through as well. Um, and I want to come back to another point that you made earlier, which of course is that the Liberal Party has this viewpoint of, of course, being able to exercise a conscience and across the floor on certain legislation. Now, we all know Labor, of course, usually has caucus positions. Do you think Labor's move to have a conscience vote is damaging them electorally, given that they're also now with some of their pre-selections that are coming through, we see some pre-selected candidates for the Senate, which are extremely right-wing, including, for example, Western Australia, Joe Bullock, who's been pre-selected, who's completely anti-gay and completely um, pro-heterosexual marriage. Look, Do you think I, that's damaging them as well? I think it is damaging them. I think that the um, what we need on this is leadership, and I think that both Julia Gillard and Tony Abbott would get a big surge in the polls if they turned around tomorrow and said, look, we're actually now in favour of it. And it is... I am a bit concerned that um, when we've last... when we had our last vote, the Prime Minister, the um, the pretender Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, the um, uh, leader of the opposition and the pretender leader of the opposition, Malcolm Turnbull, all voted against it. And mm. that, that is con of concern to me. And I think that um, once the leaders of the old parties, one of them breaks ranks and decides to change, I think it's going to be very good for them. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. And this is your host, Doug Pollard, with Rod Swift and uh, with us in the studio, Greens MP for Melbourne, Adam Bant. Now, I want to I move on from the topic of uh, marriage to look at a few of the other things that are happening at the moment, particularly in relation to Parliament. Um, the government abandoned its plans to do an overhaul of anti-discrimination law and instead brought in um, a sort of 
consolation prize, I suppose, um, Sex Discrimination Act, and they're adding LGBTIQ, whatever, into that. But they seem to have lost the the uh, removal of the religious exemptions for aged care in there. Uh, now, I've spoken to the Attorney General about this, and um, I've spoken to Mark Butler about this, and they seem to be kind of having a turf war over it. Each one wants the other one to do it. Have you heard any more about what's happening here, and is there any chance of the Greens putting up an amendment to get it in there? Look, I haven't... Uh uh, there is a chance of us putting up an amendment. I haven't heard any more about where it's at. We were disappointed that the um, uh, that that was shelved. It was so close and something that a lot of people had pushed for for a long time and the legislation was essentially ready to go. There was then a um, campaign run by uh, you know certain powerful media outlets and various other forces. Um, there was perhaps some part of the legislation that could have been drafted a little better, but that's no excuse for junking the whole thing. Mm. And mm. the um, the religious exemptions are something that the Greens, I mean, not only in respect of aged care, but certainly also in respect of uh, employment, um, more generally. Generally, is mm. something that we've been um, pursuing for some time and really has no place in modern anti-discrimination law. Yeah, I mean, the reason I raise it is because, as I say, I can't get a sensible answer out of the government as to whether they're going to do it or not. The nearest I got to that was at the community cabinet when Mark Dreyfus more or less said that um, the exemptions were part of the stuff they put on one side to deal with later, which I, I assume means after the election, which means never, probably. Uh, given the state the government's in electorally. So um, I, I wondered if you could do something to well, get then, it Well, can I say, too, that the uh, aged care legislation is currently at an inquiry. The inquiry yes. is going on at the moment, and um, I presume that this is being raised there as well, and we'll certainly try and do what we can in the Senate to see if we can get um, an agreement to insert that. Now, the other thing I wanted to, to talk to you about tonight um, was what we talked to Kath Botel about last week. We did a whole show last week on the issue of reparative therapy. Um, I did it because um, someone known to me uh, committed suicide as largely as a result, well, a mixture of abuse and uh, subsequent reparative therapy, uh, which um, basically didn't do much for his mental state. Mm. Uh, and so we looked into it in some detail last week. We had uh, a priest in the studio, we had a journalist, and we had Kath. Um, I want to ask you the same question I asked Kath, which is, given that these so-called therapies have been discredited around the world, um, they're, they're, they're known not to work, um, it's been proved time again. Most ex-gays have now become ex-ex-gays and gone back to being gay again. Um, and uh, given that they're normally carried out by amateurs whose only qualifications are religious rather than um, psychiatric or psychotherapeutic, what can politicians do? What can law do to uh, to tackle this problem and to stop these people messing people's heads up this way? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, I mean, I've spoken to people who have also personally been through that and it's uh, it can wreck lives as you said hmm. the as to what politicians can do about it um, that's 
I mean, I can think of at least two things off the top of my head. I mean, one is a system of registration for people who are practising um, and claiming to be therapists. Perhaps that's one area that we can look in because if this is purporting to be some kind of therapy, well, clearly it's not. It's got no medical benefit. It's no. medically they, they generally tend junked. to get away with it by calling themselves coaches or counsellors or whatever else. And yeah. I, I, I guess the problem there is as soon as you, you sort of legislate for one label, they'll go and invent themselves another. Yeah, but it's the practice that's abhorrent, isn't it, really? And the, um, I wonder also whether, in addition to um, you know, leadership and shining a spotlight on it, I, I wonder also whether it's something that um, ought to be subject of an inquiry. I mean, I know, I know you want to move on from marriage. I've heard some people say that one of the downsides of the debate about equal marriage is that it is drawn attention away from other issues that mm-hmm. are pressing, especially issues surrounding health and um, where that uh, perhaps there is more that we could be doing in Parliament. Um, I'll take back and have a chat with Sarah Hanson-Young, our spokesperson, the idea of especially whether we can do something by way of Senate inquiry into this. I, th- I think it's worth looking at because it is a dangerous, a dangerous practice, and uh, I, I suppose a lot of people shy away from dealing with it because it's it's bound up with a lot of these evangelical churches. Who yes. it shades over from therapy, even going as far as exorcism in some cases. It does. And can I, I, mean, I just, can I just again coming back to um, the just mentioning the marriage debate briefly. One of the things that's motivated me throughout the debate is that, yes, it is important that we get this reform, and yes, it is going to mean a lot for the people who choose to get married, and not everyone will want to do that. But I think for me it's more more important is about what... Uh, message it sends to uh, to people and to, to you know the young boy in a country town who's working out who he's attracted to or the girl who wants to take her partner to the school formal. Uh, it, this is about sending out that message. Yeah. Well, we've got a few uh, messages coming in. Uh, one here. Adam, uh, what's Mr Abbott's behaviour like leading up to the election? Last time he was really reserved. Has he changed since then? Well, I think if you... Um, Listen to him today talking about the disability insurance scheme, and I think one of the things that's pretty remarkable about him is he's in, he's incredibly disciplined, except when he's not. And um, <laughs> if you uh, if you watch some of those Channel Seven, like the Channel Seven Mark Riley interview, oh, where yeah. he um, just stares at him and is silent for a while, I think you, yeah. So you kind of you kind of expect steam to come out of his ears and the top yeah, of his head to right. flip open. And so I think so. To answer the question, I think that behind what we see, there's something more. And and it's, this, it's the what's behind and what's the something more that you often get hints of that actually is what's most concerning to yes, me. Yes, because he's incredibly controlled and incredibly scripted most of the time. You don't, there's no sense of spontaneity about him whatsoever. And uh, you know, that, that in itself makes him, well, it, it, to me, it makes him seem rather untrustworthy. But anyway, um, okay, this is a, a matter of opinion. Hot tip, the private members bill will be passed in the second term of a Liberal coalition government. It will be skewered as a free vote, but it won't get passed in the Liberal Party room. Uh, it'll pass in the second term because it'll take till then to get enough votes. Well, I'm more optimistic than that. that that's a long timeline. It's a yeah, pipe I'm, dream, isn't it? Yeah. I'm more optimistic than that, and I guess I'm increasingly frustrated by these issues where um, one of the parties says, well, look, we'll 
support it, but provided that we can be the one who's in government to get it happen. And I think one of the things that is crystal clear from, if you look around the world at where there's been successful legislative reform, it comes because you're prepared to share the love and you're prepared to say, look, this is only going to work if mm-hmm. people from of goodwill from across the parliament work together. As soon as one tries to own it and say, I'm only going to do it on conditions of X, Y and Z, the whole thing falls over. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem in France, isn't it? Because it became so closely identified with the Labour government that um, it's, um, it then became a, a, a partisan issue, whereas in New Zealand there was support right across the range. And we have a, another question here. Uh, assuming Joe Bullock gets elected to the Senate in WA, what would happen if the ALP conference removed the conscience votes? Hmm. Mm, I can probably answer that. You can probably answer that from Western Australia. Uh, what would happen is if, uh, if, if it became party policy within Labor that they have to, and they're caucused to support marriage, then he would have to um, support that. And if he didn't support that particular vote, then uh, he would be pretty much expelled from the party or would probably have to quit, which he'd swear he would never do that, I'd say. But it would would put him in a very uncomfortable position. Oh, look, I've seen people just accidentally happen to be on the toilet or taking a call at the time that a vote and just be out of the room. And so it always has to happen, just seems to happen coincidentally. It would be more likely that they would get a pair, (laughs) that's right. So he wouldn't have to vote and somebody from the opposition wouldn't have to vote. Um, Actually, I've got another question for Adam and it comes back to um, uh, the anti-discrimination legislation and you're mentioning also mental health. Um, One of, of course, the great tolls we have in our community is the mental health of younger people having to come to terms with coming out and, and coming to terms of themselves. Do you think that the it's it's a missed opportunity that the Labor Party has uh, or missed the boat in regards to not having exemptions for covering services that primarily go to use, like, for example, education services and making sure they have access to that without discrimination? Oh, look, it's, it's not just the Labor Party. Labor and the Coalition have been pretty staunch on that for a while. And um, as I mentioned before, when these things have come up in state parliament, for example, recently in the last few years, we've gone back again and said, look, you know, especially as more and more of these so-called private religious organisations are in receipt of public money to provide what were once public services, mm. like to now, especially in the area of education and yes. schooling, there's just, there's no basis whatsoever for um, continuing to maintain that kind of discrimination in terms of access to services or access to jobs. Well, that, that, that's what particularly galling, I find, you know, they are, they are being paid money out of, at the end of the day, my taxes, in order to discriminate against me and um, they're being given you know the only people who get an exemption from anti-discrimination law are the people who want to discriminate against me it's it's it really infuriates me. I was going to say, and I've said this a number of times, of course, the infuriating thing from my perspective is that these are supposedly the paragons of our society, the moral arbiters of our society. Because they, they anoint themselves with this, and yet they won't play by the mere basic decency de- rules of decency of society. Yeah, and look, and just uh, to, um, so that we don't get... I get fired up about this and not to get too carried away. I'm not a religious person myself, but I think it is worth also pointing out that, I mean, one of the things that became clear to me during the inquiries into um, my bill is that there's actually, you know, a, a, the, it's not a uniform position. No, I mean, not, there are not, some not. people who are, who are working pretty hard within their churches and religious organisations yes. to bring about change, and I take my hat off to them too. Yes. It was also very notable, and we've just got to go to a break in a moment, but before we do, um, it was very notable too uh, during the um, inquiries into the aged care business that um, the two major um, 
religious aged care providers said they didn't want to have an exemption. That's right, they didn't need From it. the discrimination law. They mm. don't practice discrimination, they don't want it. Um, the only one of the major ones that really wants to keep it is uh, Anglicare in Sydney, and we all know why. Because <laughs> mm. it's Peter Jensen and his crew. Adam, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me on. I hope your dog gets better. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, but thank you for covering it anyway, and the best of luck at the forthcoming election. Pleasure, thank you sure very much. I'm Thanks. sure we'll see you again before Look forward then. to it. Back in 72, I was involved in launching Gay News, Britain's first gay newspaper. And I'm very pleased to see that uh, people are now making an effort to preserve the history of the paper. Uh, And a very interesting Facebook page has popped up, and there's a YouTube channel as well. If you're interested, there are links on my program blog. That's joy.org.au slash rainbow report. And you can go and have a look. My next guest was assistant editor of the paper. Uh, from 1976, and his name is Keith House. Good evening, Keith. Good evening, Doug. Well, are you pleased to uh, see the history of the paper coming alive? Well, I think, as was said in Australia in 1972, it's time. <laughs> it's 40 years on, and I was just concerned that nothing was being said about a paper that was much loved and sometimes hated, uh, <laughs> controversial, but also enormously um, impressive and effective in communicating with gay and lesbian people all over the British Isles and indeed, you know, outside Britain as well during the late 1970s and early 1980s when I was involved. Yeah, I think one of the things most people remember um, about gay news, if they remember anything, is the prosecution for blasphemous libel when the head of the um, Festival of Light, that was the English equivalent of um, the Australian Christian lobby at the time, Mrs Mary Whitehouse, brought a private prosecution against the paper and the editor. Um, and, and she actually succeeded in, in, uh, in one sense, uh, in that she won the case. But I think that made the paper, didn't it? It certainly drew a lot of attention to the paper. It was even mentioned in Time magazine. It became, I mean, it had its 15 minutes of fame. It was notorious, and it certainly brought uh, many more readers, both uh, gay and non-gay, to the paper. And um, for, a, for a short while, you know, we were the centre of attention. But it didn't do us any good in the long run, because... Our editor, I think, became um, somewhat infatuated with fame, and eventually the paper uh, was sold, and um, after about two years it collapsed in early 1983, which is a source of great sadness to me, because I think it was a unique publication. And in a way, it's just as needed now as it was back in the 1970s and early 80s. Yes, Rod Swift, do you want to come in here? Yeah, I do. Um, Do you think that um, the papers, and I'm thinking also some of the Australian papers we had here with the campaign, campaign against moral persecution here down under. Do you think that the papers of the 70s and the 80s had that uh, edge, that uh, sort of social conscience that, uh, because of course it wasn't commercially driven back then, but more human rights driven, I would say, well, compared think, to now? I think it was because it was very much involved with you know, gay liberation, mm. the short-lived but very powerful gay liberation front. And it, it was working on so many different levels, wasn't it? Because it was trying to connect with so many human rights groups and liberation uh, areas, you know, black rights, uh, women's rights, etc., abortion rights. So it was much more, uh, it, was, it was wider, it was broader, and it was, it was political. Uh, do you think also that nowadays the, the more, or I'll say the modern media in the gay world has lost that touch with 
like parallel issues with things like abortion rights, with with things like that? Yeah, I, I don't want to, to sound like a grumpy old man because <laughs> I, I, well, <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think that uh, every um, decade brings its own effective medium for mm. whatever group of people it's aiming at, and I'm thrilled to see that gay publications, gay blogs, gay TV programs are now so much more colourful and lively, and they, they do deal with, with very serious issues. Tele, television and uh, the way it treats gays is, is fantastic compared to 40 years ago, really good. Mm. It's interesting that movies have very few characters now mm. gay. Yes, well, um, yeah, a lot of gay actors, but we don't know about them, do we? Well, we know a little bit more than we did 40 years ago. A little, a little 40 bit. 40 years ago, Ian McKellen wasn't out of the closet. True. Now in a big way. Yes, he is. Well, thinking back to GLF days, because I was there right at the very beginning, um, I was actually involved in the so-called editorial collective that... um, uh, GLF and the Campaign for Homosexual Equality put together in order to launch the paper, and it was meant to be a collaboration between those two. Um, And uh, there were a couple of things there that have completely changed from those days. One was that we had this very strong ethos that we would not accept advertising from commercial gay organisations like pubs and clubs um, and those sort of things. They were seen as being exploitative and therefore they were not allowed to advertise originally. And they were, in fact, in the early days in London, they weren't even allowed to join in the Pride March. I think that's been the big change that the commercialisation um, commercial, commercial of the scene and also the fact that now most of these commercial businesses are gay owned and run, which they weren't then. Mm. I think it was very much, okay, business is bad on a Monday night, so let's just shove in a gay night. And that was simply not acceptable. But the thing is, what was the alternative in those days? If people were going to go out and meet other people and dance, Mm. surely it was preferable to go there than to go to a park or a toilet where it was dangerous, etc., etc. Whereas, of course, now, as you say, most of the businesses are gay owned, Mm. which is terrific. One of the differences I noticed when I worked for Gay News was that when we used to go to gay pubs and clubs all over Britain, and we used to say to people, okay, we're going to take a photograph on the dance floor, the dance floor would would clear (laughs) couples. Now, (laughs) you, uh, you have to fight them off. Yeah. Well, I I remember when we first started the paper, we used to actually, all members of the collective used to take a big satchel full of copies round the gay bars in London. And a lot of them would not allow us to sell the paper inside the bar. They didn't like us being there. And it was the tone, didn't it? It wasn't just the management. (laughs) It wasn't just the management. It was the people as well. They were saying, oh, no, no, we don't want you. you We don't want we don't want people to know we're here. You're certainly one of the biggest obstacles I always found working for the paper were were very very closeted gay people, particularly gay men. Yes. Because they, they knew all the defences. They'd been trained by masters over the years to hide and feel self-hatred, and they were very difficult to deal with. Yes. I, mean, I remember on one occasion, um, I think it was outside the Colhern, which became something of an, icon- an iconic pub. It certainly did. Um, but uh, I remember outside the Colhern, when we were conducting sales outside there, people throwing bottles at us. You know, so, yeah, so things have changed an awful lot since those days. Yeah, well, because the paper used to receive uh, sort of obscene phone calls practically every day. You know, we just we just got so used to that uh, because it was in the telephone book as gay news. And in those days, you know, the word gay was was really a, a red 
dragged to a bull. It was very shocking. The paper was really regarded as like a, almost like a terrorist publication. Yeah, it was... Well, I suppose because we were tangled up with GLF and a lot of people were very frightened of GLF mm. uh, because GLF laid the stress not on um, lobbying but uh, on something we seem to have forgotten how to do, certainly here in Australia, and that's direct action. Yeah, right, the yes, that yeah. and street theatre, that was very much part of uh, GLF, wasn't it? it? It had real flair and, of course, lots of anger was fueling it. And mm. it was young. Yes. It was young. It was full of... Very early 20-year-olds. Of which I was one. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of my favourite ones was um, when uh, this book came out called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But oh, Afraid yeah. to Ask. David Rubin. David Rubin. Well, and, uh, Martin, and Martin Corbett, who'd been one of the original members yeah. of Gay News, although he wasn't with them anymore. Um, uh, he was so outraged by this publication. Uh, it had this chapter on homosexuality, which went on at great length about gay men shoving vegetables up their bottoms. Um, so he constructed a 12-foot-long cucumber and, ah. and delivered it to the publisher's offices with oh, much resultant publicity. Yeah. There, was, there, was there was wit and humour in that. Yeah. There was a lot of that, wasn't there, in the, in the early days of GLF, and uh, it was much appreciated by a small group of people, but I think it did scare a lot of more conservative gays off. Well, yeah, but it did get things done. It, it did. It, it did, did get things done, and, 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 and people followed on from there. Keith, you interviewed an awful lot of people in your time mm. at the paper, didn't mm. you? Who's, mm. who's probably your most memorable? Uh, I would think uh, that uh, one of them would have been... Um, Angela Badley, who was the character Mrs. Bridges in Upstairs Downstairs, she was actually my first interview for Gay News. She didn't know what the paper was, and when I told her, she said, but I thought it was a paper for happy people. She was most shocked. Anyway, the mm. poor lady died in her sleep, I may say, that weekend. So my oh. first article for Gay News was published posthumously. <laughs> that, that would get, tend to make it stick in your mind. Uh, was, it would. Was there any particularly really, really difficult interview you did? Very difficult. One with a with a diva whose name I refused to to say. Uh, she turned out to be extremely homophobic, and uh, <laughs> luckily she was homophobic in Time magazine as well. And so we cancelled the interview. We we just didn't go through with printing it because it was quite offensive. Um, but yeah, some people were difficult. But in the main, because it was gay news and because they agreed to be interviewed by Gay News, they were, I think, perhaps more thinking people in the, in the first place. And, and, and most of them, unlike Angela Badley, didn't know who they were talking they, to. Well, I think she absolutely knew what the paper was all about. <laughs> she had to go through the, the motions of being shocked. Oh, dear. <laughs> Those were the days. And okay. when I interviewed Brian Derbyshire, at, uh, he was the king of S&M. Oh, yes, dear Beryl, yes. At, uh, and I interviewed him at the Colherne pub, and he went through all the various uh, uh, stages of S&M sex, including uh, the using the code word Oklahoma as uh, <laughs> the, the more rugged parts of the uh, of the act. And when my mother read this interview, she said, but, but this is disgusting. Yeah. What are you promoting? So when I told Dennis Lemon, our editor, he rang my mother up, and as he was, with so many people charmed her yes. to total submission and after that I, him and the paper could do no wrong Well we're going to have to leave it there I <coughs> just my Keith. most say to people look, if they want to read, uh, read if they want to look at these uh, little interviews that we've done yep. it's that Gay News, Keith Howes H-O-W-E-S yep. or Gay News UK Keith Howes, H-O-W-E-S and we've yep. done 24 
uh, YouTube videos about the paper and yep. all its content. Yep, and I've put a link to all those on my blog for the program. Joy.org.au slash Rainbow Report. Keith House, thank you Love very to much. Talk to you, though. Bye-bye. you too. Bye bye. This Joycast is a free service brought to you by Joy 94.9. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.